I'm going to commence reading in verse 1 of chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the follow-up to chapter 7, which deals with the struggles that God's people have, that Paul had, and through him the Lord's own people have, with sin, this warfare, this constant struggle with the world that lies within our hearts. And Romans 8 is the assurance chapter that uh, rings with certainty about the victory that is the Lord's people. We're going to begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And we know that James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's bow for a moment around the throne. Ask God to come along and help us. Father in heaven, thou knowest far better than we how much we need spiritual strength for this hour. It's true, Lord, we need physical strength. The body grows weary. It needs to be refreshed. The mind needs to be quickened. And, O oh Lord, above and beyond all of that, we need the empowerment of the Holy Ghost. We thank Thee He indwells all of Thy people. We thank Thee He has been sent as a paraclete, one who comes alongside and helps us in our time of need. And we pray that Thou wilt honor Thy word to us even now in that way. 
Spirit of God, come alongside thy servant, stand beside him, work upon him and within him, that he might bring a message from thy heart to ours. And grant our God that we will walk away from the house of God this Sabbath day, saying, sure was good to be in the Lord's house. The Lord spoke to me. In Christ's name we ask it all. Amen. Amen. As we come to this, this afternoon to this final message on the Christian's pursuit of holiness, we're taking up that truth we've been considering in verse 7 of James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James clearly teaches in that text that the devil is our opponent because he has to be resisted. The sheer fact that he's an opponent, he must be resisted. And he clearly teaches that he can be resisted. He can be. And he also teaches not only that the devil can be resisted, but that he can be overcome. He is met with such resistance from the people of God, such opposition that he is forced to flee. I don't think that that's something that is uppermost in the thinking, the mentality of many, many Christians that, yes, I know I'm supposed to fight the devil and resist him, but the fact is he can be overcome to such a manner that he is forced to run away. The Holy Spirit did not simply say, resist the devil and he will leave you. He said, he will flee from you. And every time that particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, it refers to fleeing because in danger, fleeing to a place of safety. So he is picturing Satan because of the resistance of the believer against him. He feels he's in danger and he needs to flee to a place of safety. I need to get out of here. That's what it's saying. Sometimes it's translated in the New Testament by the word escape, as when John asked the Pharisees who came to his baptism, ye serpents, ye generations of vipers, how can ye escape, that's the same word, the damnation of hell? How can you flee to safety from the damnation of hell? When the Pharisees arrested Christ, in Gethsemane, Mark writes that the disciples, they all forsook him and fled. It's the same word. They ran away to a place of safety to escape the danger that they felt they were facing. If he's going to be resisted by God's people, then the more they understand his strategies, the better equipped they will be to actually resist him and to overcome him and to see him flee Remember the grand reason for our battle with Satan and his kingdom. God has made us. He's redeemed us. He actually sent his son to die in our stead on the tree in order that we might glorify him by our lives and enjoy him for all eternity. This side of heaven and the next. That's why we've been redeemed. Since that's the chief end of our existence, we know it's Satan's chief end to thwart that from happening. His great aim is to incite us to dishonor God and to tempt us to find true joy anywhere else but in the Lord. Anywhere else but in obedience. 
And Satan does all of this out of hatred for God, which incites him to try and frustrate and defeat God's purpose for us in this world. We are means to an end with him. Oh, he hates us because we belong to God, but we are a means to an end to him, and that is to get at God as much as he can. Now, call that I pointed out that since the word of God is the only rule by which we are told to glorify and enjoy the Lord, Satan wars against us by seeking to promote this disobedience to the word of God. Disobedience. Unholy living. Displeasing the Lord by our conduct. It is his attempt to compel us to disobey the, word, the Lord's word and lead us into sitting against God. And that's why John has to write to Christians, as we saw this morning, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He's got to set up that red flag. Do not, if you're doing it, stop doing it. Do not fall into this habit of loving the world and the things that are in the world. Because if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. What is the world? It's that organized system of fallen humanity whose ruler is the prince of this world. That's the world. In essence, the world is everything, as I said this morning, everything and anything that is opposed to God. The world is everything that Satan uses to try to prevent us from pursuing holiness. Anything. Don't, don't, don't you know, it's like the old, years ago I read something, you remember the author, but he talks about in the Christian's life there's these rooms. And we have things in these rooms in our heart and it's got to be a case of where, Lord, any room in my heart, any room in my life you have free access to. And there must never be, here's a room where it's locked and it's closed and Lord, you can't go there. Never do you want that to be the case. It's wide open. Anything and everything, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, you're the Lord of my life. Not the Lord of 75 or 85% of my life. You're 100% the Lord of my life. Nothing is shut out to you. There's nothing that I want to say hands off. That's what we're talking about. So Satan uses this world that's within the flesh, as Paul's been dealing with it in Romans 7 and 8, to the lust of the world, to lead us away, away from the Lord, away from his word, away from obedience, away from honoring him, and away from enjoying him. So here we need to ask ourselves and answer the question, how do, you, how do you resist the devil if that's what he's doing, if that's what he's after? How am I going to resist the devil? That's what I want to deal with in this final message. How do you do it, practically? It's fine to talk about all the, the theory here, and this is what's going on, and this is what the devil is doing, and yeah, I need to oppose him, yes, and I need to open up all my life to the Lord and say, Lord, it's all yours, yes, but practically, how do you resist the devil? Well, what we read from Romans chapter 8 tonight gives us some clear light on how we are to do that. Number one, we have to mortify the deeds of the body. Mortify the deeds of the body. What's that mean? How do you do that? 
How do you put to death the deeds of the body? He's already gone into great length talking about that body in chapter 7. I wish I had a week, I mean a solid week every night to just go through and set all this up, but I don't. I have this one last message. The body, the deeds of the body, put them to death. The sin that dwells within us, he calls it. Romans 7, verse 23, he speaks of the law of sin, the the principle of sin, which is in my members. Now, when you come right down to it, the deeds of the body can be summed up really in one word, and that is the word self. It's self. Self. Sin is about self. Sin is about pleasing self, satisfying self, satisfying the body, satisfying the lust of the flesh. Sin is about self. Self wants to be God. Your self wants to be God. To be served, by that I mean to be served, to be obeyed, to be loved, and to be adored and pampered. But God is the only one who is to be obeyed, and in this sense, spiritual sense, loved and obeyed and adored and served. But the flesh wants to sit on the throne of God and say, worship me. We are therefore commanded by God to put self to death. In whatever form it appears, our work is to execute whatever there is in our lives that opposes the only true and living God. In the first place, under this truth of the need to mortify the deeds of the body, putting sin to death, we must see, and Paul, and I only say it because the Spirit of God through Paul brings this out, putting sin to death is a debt we owe to God. Look at verse 12, Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors to the, not to the flesh to live After the flesh, we are debtors. Therefore, brethren, that's in reference to therefore you go back and what's he been talking about? All that God has done through Christ and his spirit being given to us in making us sons of God. In light of all the mercy and the grace he's shown us, we owe a debt to God. We are debtors. According to this passage... The distinctive mark that we are indeed indwelt by this spirit, who's called the spirit of adoption, the mark that shows we are truly the children of God who have the spirit of adoption within them, we, by the spirit, put to death this sin that is in us, these deeds of the body. Paul says it plainly. This is the mark. This is what separates you. This is what distinguishes you. That you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of your body. You put self on the cross. You die to self. Sin is alive. If you have to put to death the deeds of the body, 
it means the deeds of the body are alive, right? You don't need to kill something that's already dead and gone. John Owen, he said, the Puritan, if you're not familiar with him, John Owen said, let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who doth not kill sin in his way takes no steps towards his journey's end. Sin is alive, and we are to kill it. Mortify, that that verb mortify is in the present tense. It indicates not only that they're They were currently doing this, need to do it, but it means that the apostle was telling them to keep on doing it. Keep on mortifying, putting to death self, putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death that world within. Keep doing it. So what are we supposed to do? And what are we supposed to understand from this call of God to keep on mortifying sin in our bodies? Well, I like to begin with a negative, and let me tell you very quickly what it does not mean when he says to mortify, put to death the deeds of the body of the flesh. It does not mean that we can ever, this side of glory, completely eradicate sin. There is no sinless perfection this side of heaven. It is not going to happen. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we do have sin within us. Paul makes that clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. You know that's the part where he talks about, I I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You want to know what that mark, that goal was? It was perfect. You read it in context. It was perfect likeness to Christ. That's what I am striving for. But before he gets there, he says this, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. I have not gotten that mark. There is still plenty of room for transformation in me, for change in me. There are still sins in my body. We'll talk about that in a moment. There are still sins in me that I have to, I have to fight and put to death on a regular basis. Nor does it mean, when it says mortify the deeds of the body, that we have occasional, temporary victories over sin. In a time of deep trouble or trial, when fear has gripped the heart of a child of God, the fear of God's judgment, the fear of something dreadful happening, there has been an awakening to sin. Because they're afraid that trouble has come upon them because of some sin in their life. And they're afraid God is about to do something awful. They become very sensitive to sins they may have winked an eye at before, but now they realize, oh, this might be God just coming in and there's going to be something bad happening. So they put away that sin and they turn to the Lord in prayer and in weeping And it may appear that sin has been put to death, that sin's been mortified, but it's not long after the trouble has passed that that same old sin comes out of hiding. Was it put to death? No. It was only temporary 
because of the trouble. What mortifying sin does mean? Mortifying the deeds of the body. Let me spend, let us spend some time here. First, mortifying the deeds of the body is the habitual weakening of sin. The habitual weakening of sin. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 speaks of the flesh crucifying the flesh with the lust thereof. Sin crucified struggles and strives. But because it's crucified, it grows weaker and weaker as a man has been crucified on a cross. You know, those folks could go on for days before they ever died hanging on the cross. The fact that Jesus Christ died so quickly, it totally shocked Pilate. He wasn't expecting that when they said he's dead. He's dead. They would hang for days. I forget the actual, it was weeks, the longest one ever stayed on the cross. Weeks. They were crucified. But all they were struggling. Romans 6 verse 6. Our old man is, literally, has been crucified with him, that's Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. John Gill, the old Baptist preacher that came before Spurgeon at New Park Street in England, he said, the old man, though crucified and under the restraints of mighty grace and cannot reign and govern as before, yet is alive and acts and operates and oftentimes has great sway and influence. But whereas he is deprived of his reigning power, he is said to be crucified. It is the denial, the denial of things that feed sin. That's the habitual weakening of sin. Denying the things that feed sin, if you want, that feed the flesh, that feed the old man. Denying those things. Let me just give you a few quotes from the epistles in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 he writes to Titus, Paul does, denying ungodliness, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Denying ungodliness, denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we live soberly, righteously in this present world. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts, worldly lusts, which war against the soul. They're going to grow stronger if you don't abstain from them. If you, don't, if, if you feed them, they'll get stronger. Romans 13, verse 14, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Don't give it an opportunity to get stronger. If you or I engage in anything that's actually going to strengthen the worldly lust, the world within us, the flesh, you can expect a path of disobedience to be where you walk. 
I mean, no, no soldier, no, no general in his right mind would supply the enemy with ammunition. Well, let's, let's give them all the food they need and all the water they need and all the ammunition they need. And we'll go and fight them. And you, you would say that's insanity. It is. But is it any more insane if we actually feed the lust of the flesh? If we give, make provision for the flesh? That's why Paul told Timothy, flee also youthful lusts. He was a young man. Run away from them to a place of safety. Don't think you can actually live near them, with them, and feed them, and you're going to be okay. John Owen said, Sin will no otherwise die but by being gradually and constantly weakened. Take that on board. It will no otherwise die unless by gradually and constantly be weakened. Spare it, he wrote, and it heals its wounds and recovers strength. That's mortifying it. Not just almost getting it, but weakening it again and constantly. It also means mortifying the deeds of the body. It's an ongoing war with sin. Not just the habitual weakening of it, but it must be an ongoing war with sin. No clear example of this could be found in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, I fight. Not as one that beateth the air. He's not a shadow boxer. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Let me stop there and explain something first about castaway. He's not referring to the Lord just shutting me out of the family of God. That will never happen. The word means disapproved. I will not be fit any longer to be a preacher because I have not kept my body under. How many men do you know to this day in your lifetime that have become castaways, unfit to be ministers, unfit to be elders, because they did not war against the flesh? They succumbed, they gave in, and they fell. At that point in time, it is over. It's, there's no going back. It is over for them as far as a ministry, as a pastor, as a preacher is concerned. Forgiven the sin is, thank God for that truth. But they now are no longer blameless. Now there is a handle that can be gotten upon them. And they are unqualified to be elders, preachers in the church of Jesus Christ. So that's not what Paul's referring to, unless I be a, I'll be unfit for service. If I don't mortify the deeds of my body, I fight not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body. That word, the Greek phrase, keep one word actually, keep under means I beat black and blue. That's what it means literally. I beat black and blue. You know what that means? He hits hard 
again and again and again. He's not just throwing little sissy punches. It's leaving bruises, black and blue. My body, he knew, was his enemy. I keep hitting it again and again to crush it, to weaken it, to weaken its power as it seeks to oppose me in my pursuit. My great goal I'm reaching for is just like Christ Jesus. The Christian life is not about fun and games, brothers and sisters. It's about a war. It's about fighting a battle every day of our lives. It's, it's marked not by self-indulgence, but by self-denial. But the whole idea of that being the believer's life, a battleground between the flesh and the spirit, has virtually disappeared. It's about virtually disappeared. Don't even hear about this. It's all feel good. Tell me stories that make me feel good. That, well, as, I, as one fellow, excuse me, me, I am OCD when things fall from the pulpit in front of me. One fellow walked in years ago when I had not long been in Columbia visiting. He'd been invited to the church. He came in on a Sunday morning, listened politely, attentively, walked out. He said later on to the fellow that invited him, not that day, but a few days later, you know, it was good, but I didn't get a warm and fuzzy. And folks, that's what people are looking for. A warm and fuzzy. Don't want to hear about, I've got a real battle with sin. I need truth that's going to help me fight this battle because my, my chief end in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. It's not about getting warm and fuzzies. Thirdly, mortifying sin, body, the deeds of the body, is about winning over sin. Yes, it's about weakening sin. It's about warring against sin. But it's also about winning over sin. And here's why I think you may choke if you're going to choke anywhere. Winning over sin. Complete elimination of all sin in our life is not going to happen until we're glorified. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But we can mortify sin, sins, to such a degree, we can so weaken them and, and war against them that we actually win the victory over them and we stop doing them. That's what winning means. That's what putting to death involves. Not just the, the weakening of it and keeping hitting it and hitting it and warring with it, but actually we stop doing the sin that we put to death. Yep, you, you, you can get over that short temper. You can win the victory over it. Habits that you may have held on to for a long time can be broken. 
It's going to take weakening the sin, warring against it, beating it black and blue, but you can win. It's absolutely a denial of God's word to maintain in your thought that I cannot, I cannot win the victory over some particular sin. The long story short is that putting sin to death is not an option if we want to enjoy the Lord. Again, the Puritan John Owen wrote, The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on our mortification of deeds of the flesh. The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on our mortification of deeds of the flesh. And, and it, you don't need an erudite theologian, the genius like John Calvin, to get that. Because you know right well what sin does to your enjoyment of the Christian life. You know right well what when sin is not mortified, when there's not an ongoing battle and war with sin, how you feel and how much you honor the Lord with joy and service. Owen also made this first statement. Be killing sin or it will kill you. Be killing sin or it will kill you. And it will, you know. It will kill your joy. It will kill our peace. It will kill our interest in the things of God. If we're not killing sin. It will kill our testimony. What we are called to do seems so daunting. It seems so, so impossible. But that brings me to my second point. You all with me? You've had that lunch. That blood is going to the stomach. Spurgeon, when he would see his congregation begin to doze, he'd make them stand up and sing. I'm not going to do that to you right now, but... That was a little wake-up call. That was like the old guys would go around with a brass ball for the men in the church or a feather for the women and knock them on the head or tickle their chin and get them awake. Well, now we're at point two. How do we do this? How do we resist the devil in our pursuit of holiness? You do it in the second place by believing God's promise that you can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. You believe the promise of God. I don't mean you know right well. I'm not talking about mental assent. I, I sometimes would like to have seen them take the word a lot of times in the Old New Testament or Old for that matter. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the promise. Because believing can just be, well, I believe it's true. I believe it's accurate. I believe it's biblical. But there's something that comes in when you use the word trust. I'm leaning on it. I'm embracing it. I'm trusting it to be so. Not just believing it so. But there's something about my heart that is leaning upon this truth. Believing God's promise that you can overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, as you know, we, we, we are dealing with a foe who has power beyond our wildest imagination. 
He is highly intelligent. He's extremely cunning and deceptive. He has a vast army of demonic beings who are at his beck and call. He has thousands of years of experience of experimenting with God's people in battle. Thousands of years he's observing. He knows God's word better than you do. He knows you better than you do. He is void of any compassion and is motivated by an intense hatred for God that will stop at absolutely nothing to achieve his goals. That being said, none of those things, none of those things destroy or diminish the promise of this text that comes to every Christian. Mortify the deeds of the body and ye shall live. Really live the Christian life. Are you doing that? Can I just stop off and ask the question? It's rhetorical. Are you really living the Christian life? Oh, I know you're alive and you're living life. But are you living the Christian life? It's a very distinct life, you know. It's a very unique life. And it's all wrapped up in this pursuit of being like Jesus Christ. There is no hint of uncertainty when James wrote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will. It wasn't James that was saying that, it was the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost can only speak the truth. You resist him and he'll run away. You must lay hold like any other promise in God's word. You must grasp it with the hand of faith. And you must take that promise and hold it up to God in prayer. Lord, you promised me. I just don't think that's done a whole lot. When it comes to overcoming sin in the life. Lord, you promised me. That if I resist the devil, he will flee. You promised me. Do what you promised. An old Puritan, Puritan was fond of saying, Show the Lord his own handwriting. God is tender to his own handwriting. His promises are his own handwriting. Faith in God's promises is critical to overcoming the devil. Of course, all you have to do is read chapter 11 of Hebrews. It was through faith, 
through faith in God's promises that they, I quote, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed, grew valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. That passage is all about overcoming the devil. It's all about overcoming the devil. How did they do it? They did it by faith in the promises of God's word. Hebrews eleven thirteen. They believed God's promises and were persuaded of them and embraced them. They were confident about the outcome. You know, you don't really get too much excited about doing something. Well, you know, if you don't really believe, you know, if I, uh, if I could broadcast to all of Phoenix, on the airwaves, on the social media, on the television, on the radio, everything out, that if you will show up next Saturday at such and such address, you'll have $1,000 given to you, no strings attached. Now, if you didn't believe that that was going to happen, you really wouldn't have any interest in showing up. If you believed it, man, they'd be at your door. When you don't really believe the promise, you don't do anything with it. You don't plead it. You don't draw the comfort that it was designed to give, the strength it was designed to give to your faith. It's almost like a ho-hum promise. Oh, it's nice. But promises are not just to be, well, put on, <laughs> not just to be put on your fridge or hung on your wall, but to actually be taken to God and pleaded and say, Lord, you said. Now honor your word. Because I can't do this. I don't have the strength. I'm outnumbered. I'm outmanned. I'm outmatched. I have not the ability to do this in myself. But you promised me something. Do we do that? You see, the devil wants Christians to think that they're beat before they lift one finger. Oh, I'm just consigned to sin. The flesh is weak and on on it goes. But to actually have the mindset through Christ, I can mortify the deeds of my body. Through Christ, I can win. We all need to hear the words of the Apostle in Hebrews 10. Cast not away your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Resist the devil. The promise is he will flee. Thirdly, how do we resist the devil? Realize that you are fighting an enemy that has already been conquered. Unless you think for one moment that my first point was simply here a little pep talk about self-confidence, you're mistaken. 
The ground of our confidence, the ground of our confidence to overcome the devil is not in our confidence. It is not in our faith, in the promises. And it's certainly not in our ability to wage spiritual warfare. The very foundation of our confidence, as far as any victory over the flesh is concerned, is the victory that Christ has already won at Calvary. That's the foundation, always has been, and always will be. Putting it any other place, we are asking for defeat and frustration. I have to come back to, there is a victory, there was a battle that was fought, and there was a battle that was won. Indeed, it was the war that was ultimately won by Christ upon the cross. That's the victory that I'm talking about. That is, well... As that hymn, old country hymn goes, victory in Jesus. Let's just step back into time, if we could, with our imaginations and stand around the hill crag of Calvary. We see the man of sorrows. I don't know what he looked like. I'll find out one day. I'm not worried about the details. But there's a man on the tree. His face has been beaten beyond recognition. You couldn't even recognize him if you knew him. He was so bloodied. Beard all plucked out and matted with blood. He's been saying things from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. I thirst. Ah, but just before he died, he shouted. He didn't say it quietly. He shouted, finished! I accomplished what I was sent to do by my father. I have won. Brothers and sisters, he did not just win that for himself. He won it for us. It's our victory. And we are to stake everything upon his victory on the cross. He obtained for us everything that pertains to life and godliness and this pursuit of holiness. No matter how many times you and I may fail, Christ does not and did not fail. That's the foundation of our faith. That's why we believe the promise. It's not a vain thing. To say, you can win. You can conquer the sin. It can no longer tyrannize the people of God. It has lost its reigning power. Oh, it can vex you and it does vex you. But sin shall not have dominion over you. That's the statement of scripture. It shall not have dominion over you. Because Christ conquered. Hallelujah. That's the truth. That's bedrock gospel truth. 
It is not truth we are just simply to memorize, store up into our heads. It's truth we are to live on, to hang on, to plead, through which we gain victory. He will not fail, and he cannot fail. I know, I know how you feel at times, because I've been there, and will be there yet again. I know how you have struggled with some temptation strong, as the hymn puts it, and have been defeated. I know you have felt so battered at times by the devil so powerless against his wiles, so weak at overcoming his temptations that you've wondered if you're a child of God at all. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. There you are, a bruised reed. A bruised reed is so tender. It's a plant that's weak, that's very fragile. It's easily blown by the wind and easily broken off. It refers to the child of God who is conscious of his own feebleness, of his own weakness, his own instability. It's not like this strong, tall bamboo It's just a reed. But then the word bruised is added. Not broken in two, but bruised, or we could say crushed. Something has happened and it's, it's bruised the reed. Perhaps it's been because of some failure, some fall, some temptation from the devil that was not overcome. And the believer feels crushed and broken down by a sense of their sin, a sense of their failures, a sense of their defeats. But the Isaiah says, the prophet has declared, Christ will not break off the bruised reed. He will not destroy it. He will not make those who are already broken down with a sense of their sin even more miserable. He is not going to do that. That's not the Lord. The devil will do that. The devil will seek to beat you down again and again and again and again and bring all the accusations. But that's not Jesus. The bruised reed, he will not break. Martin Luther said, referring to Christ, he does not cast away nor crush nor condemn the wounded in conscience, those who are terrified in the view of their sins, the weak in faith and practice, but watches over and cherishes them, makes them whole and affectionately embraces them. Not only will Christ not break the bruised reed, but he will not quench the smoking flax. It's a reference to an oil lamp Flax was used as the wick, and there's the oil's about to run out. It's just spittering and sputtering. It speaks of the child of God in whose heart the flame of any love to God's about to go out. 
He no longer shines brightly as he once did. Just a little spark and a lot of offensive smoke. But Christ will not let that smoking wick be extinguished. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and take care of the feeblest, the feeblest grace in the soul of every one of his people. No matter how feeble it gets, he will not crush it and extinguish it. He'll care for it. You want to know why? Because he put it there. It's his grace. And he will care for his grace in the hearts of his people. What I am saying to you, you can have absolute confidence, absolute, that you can win over sin because Christ has won that victory. That should give you calls to rejoice in spite of how somber and sobering the reality of the battle with sin is. We have Christ. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul asked that question. You know the picture there is? One of the ways you can understand how vile these Roman executioners were, they would take a man who's been condemned to death and they would take a dead corpse and tie them face to face. It would be a slow death because that corruption would eventually pass on over and that man would die from that. That's the picture Paul has in mind. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's how he felt about the sin that was in him. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the note that he sounded out. The things I would do, I do not. The things I would not, those I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Ah, but there's Jesus Christ. He will deliver me. And one day, when we're all safe home, and we're standing on the shores of glory, whatever that is, we're going to, he won. He was right all along. We're here. We're home. Sin is gone. It's gone. It's gone. My prayers, you'll go from here with a fresh determination. I'm going to war against this sin and this devil. Because my Lord said, if I war, he will flee from me. And he's assured me, I will have the final victory. God, write that word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, what a glorious gospel thou hast given us. We could just stay here all night, it seems, and revel 
in the goodness of our God, in the tenderness of our Savior, in the victory of Calvary. Believe we must. Go back to our homes, go back to our jobs. Lord, we pray that for every family, there'll be a renewed vision of what we're called to be and called to do and how we can do that through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen and amen.